0: So today, we usually do the nose, uh, and that's a weekly cultural roundtable with a panel. And I don't know, I'm just back from a a public radio conference where we've been talking a little bit uh, about innovation and the future. And So what we're doing right now is just taking kind of a hiatus from the nose while we think a little bit more about how we do it, whether we can do it better. So we're going to do a different kind of cultural show today. We're going to talk about the buzz around the movie Crazy Rich Asians. We're going to talk about whether baseball is making some mistakes that could lead to its demise as a major league sport. And we'll do some endorsements, but not in the usual way. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this news. So uh, welcome to this episode of, it's not exactly the nose, we're doing something a little bit different today, but let me begin by saying a different thing, which is, you know, this is kind of a year in which um, after several years uh, of bemoaning and legitimately bewailing the lack of representation, uh, some really important thrusts towards representation in movies uh, have uh, taken place. I guess you could sort of even backdate that to at least get out in Wonder Woman last year. But um, these two huge tentpoles of representation, Black Panther and now our Crazy Rich Asians, uh, are very much a part of a much more, a much an even larger discussion. Um, and, and so I just even before I introduce the guest on this, I, I want to tell you, A, That in the second segment, we're going to have a conversation, which we would never do on the nose, about uh, whether baseball is kind of currently devouring itself. Like, you know, the worm Aurobaros, whether there's uh, problems with baseball, even in an exciting season, that may spell not doom, but certainly a decline uh, for it. We'll explain that all when we, I mean, Major League Baseball, and kids playing baseball in the park, I think we'll be fine. And then towards the end, you know, we usually do these recommendations and endorsements with our panel. Well, we didn't do a panel today, so the producers uh, of WNPR uh, are making their endorsements. I'm really excited about that. Um, let me say one more thing before I bring aboard board Karen, H- uh, Karen K. Ho, and that is this. Um, you know, I mean, I'm a white guy. Uh, you, may, you might have noticed over the years I'm a white guy. Um, and as a result, I although I have raised a Latino son for to the age of 28, so for 28 years. In that way, I sort of get what it's like to go to all kinds of uh, of genre shows and, and just not see oneself, you know, to go to rom-coms and not see oneself, to go to comic book movies and not see oneself. It's something that starts earlier. It starts when you're trying, well, at least, I don't know, 28 years ago, I can tell you, it started when you're looking around for children's books that had any Mexican kids in them. You know, that that uh, living in America, this fabled melting pot, <laughs> um, there's an awful lot of siloing that goes on and also just a lot of sort of latency that goes on. There's this kind of latent assumption. That you know that most people will be white in culture, uh, and that often people of other ethnicities have these very kind of specific kinds of roles, you know, as best friends or comic relief or something like that. Um, and you know that's not an absolutely unflinching problem. We can all point to ways in which you know it, it began to diminish, but it's rare. And and the thing that makes Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians I think worth talking about, you know. A little bit in in, uh, in synchronous orbit uh, is that um, it 's rare to see movies where you know white people don 't really have any function. <laughs> Uh, which, you know, and that's kind of a relief. And I I, so uh, it's an exciting time. And so Crazy Rich Asians, as everybody probably knows right now, is many things. Uh, It's getting uh, good reviews. Uh, It is a box office hit. It is fulfilling all of the expectations that were heaped on it. And those were many, many expectations. And here to talk much more knowledgeably than my babbling uh, is, whoops, I just did that wrong, Karen K. Ho, a business, culture, and media reporter. She wrote The Time magazine. August twenty seventh, the cover story Crazy Rich Asians is going to change Hollywood. It's about time. It's on the cover of Time, so there you go. Uh, and uh, she's joining us via Skype. Uh, Karen Cahoe, thanks for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So let's, let's maybe start with the expectations. This is one of these movies that really you know ran out into the marketplace, bearing, uh, like Atlas bearing a globe on its back. Maybe you can say a little bit more about how much was built up around this movie
1: everything was built up around this movie. I think there's a expectation regarding everything from casting to how accurately it would represent Singaporean and strange Chinese culture to the level of uh, costumes and set design, you know, that it had, there were expectations that it had to match, if not exceed the devil wears Prada because of the level um, of wealth that was indicated simply in the title. And so, you know, and the way that we consume media now is that people are rewatching, or you know, they're uh, taking screenshots, and you know, people are consuming media in a way that really rewards a level of detail, but that also puts an additional amount of pressure for the creative people behind the scenes to sort of reward those really diehard fans in a way that I think is a very new and modern thing, but that you know, that takes a lot of money or it takes a lot of time if you have a very small budget, which for a movie like this, actually, you know, they did a lot of stuff um, with, uh, they they pulled a lot of strings in order to make it look much richer than the budget actually gave it for.
0: Right. It doesn't look uh, like anything was done on the cheap in this movie. And so, and of course that's necessary. It's right there in the title. Um, So um, this to sort of, let's let's talk about the precipitating event uh, of this plot. Uh, We are introduced to uh, Nick, uh, who's uh, kind of a dreamy, uh, Nick Young, a kind of dreamy uh, New York-based, as we know him anyway, uh, boyfriend of the wonderful Rachel. Uh, And uh, he is getting married to, uh, he's going to be the best man at the wedding of his best friend. He's a really great guy because his name is Colin. Uh, And so let's hear a little bit about that.
2: Singapore for spring break. Colin's wedding. We've been dating for over a year now, and I think it's about time people met my beautiful girlfriend. Come on. I'm Colin's best man. Don't you want to
3: see where I grew up? Meet my family, my Amar, and meet up with that strange college roommate of
2: yours?
4: Picklin. Lynn.
2: Mm hmm. She them.
4: has been begging me to come visit her, you
2: know. The universe has spoken. It wants you over there. Come to Singapore.
0: I on the whole island to meet the brilliant Rachel Chu. Oh. All right. Uh, And and thus the drums begin beating and the plot begins to unfold. Um, And so, Karen, um, we should maybe even say a little bit more than I have said uh, about how successful this movie is. Right. Box office wise and all the ways in which we can even do metrics for for critical appraisal. uh, It's it's hitting all the required marks. Right.
1: Yeah. It's really important that um, it is. You know, it had a couple of key notable things, which is that its opening period was stretched from three days to five. And so there are two markers regarding um, more opportunities for people to go out at the first week and sort of literally vote with their dollars, you know, get out of the house, book a babysitter and go to the theater and watch it with their friends and family members. And, you know, so those numbers, I think he was around 24 24- million just for the three-day count and more than $34 million for the five days, you know, in Canada, and the United States. And those numbers are really important because the romantic comedies have not performed very well in the last three years. And uh, even especially going back to the last five years, you know, in terms of making more than $30 million. And so the fact that it was able to have a radically different looking cast um, in a genre that has not done well at the box office for the last few years and you know had to compete with uh, big franchises starring superheroes and action films. And also um, the fact that you know historically we've seen a lot of uh, movie sales decline as streaming has become much more popular with Netflix and Amazon. So it takes a lot more for people to get out of the house and just see a movie period. And, you know, even MoviePass has not done super great lately. So there are all these factors (laughs) saying these were the challenges to get people out to the theaters. And then when we got those numbers, you know, I think it was something around 40% of the audience was Asians and Asian-Americans. And that is a dramatically different audience than most of the time when you have all those other movies. I think it's around 10 or 15% at most. And so people were really flocking to the movies in a way that... um, that represented a dramatically different demographic than, than prior uh, seasons before. And so all of those counts actually said, you know, there was a business case for saying, if you keep doing this, people will keep coming out and spending real money going to this movie.
0: So, um, as I hinted at at the beginning, I might not be the target audience for this movie. I'm a 63-year-old white guy. <laughs> um, but, uh, and I, I'm not really... Much of a rom-com audience, although here in my dotage, uh, I'm emotionally promiscuous, so it was very easy to, easy to get me sniffling at the end, uh, and I was sniffling the way I'm supposed to be sniffling at the end of, of this rom-com. Um, but I was I was a, there was a little bit of me, and this is the the point of struggle, I think. There's a little bit of me was that was sniffling, going, "This is so wonderful," but these people are like one percenters of one percenters of one percenters of one percent. <laughs> these are the People who are monopolizing all the world's resources. Why am I getting sentimental about them? Um, And I don't know. I mean, can you address that part a little bit? I mean, this really, you know, this isn't even I mean, I have a problem with all those Nancy Myers movies where like everybody, you know, is. Super rich. And I mean, there's no such thing, apparently, as a romantic poor person or anything like that. In this movie, the poor, dirty little ragamuffin uh, is an economics professor at NYU, uh, a a position to which many people in America would probably aspire. So I don't know. Talk a little bit about that part of this, the, the way it is a valentine, a little bit anyway, to a certain kind of excess.
1: I think we've had so many movies about romantic comedies that were uh, peons to excess. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, inherently,
0: it was still about a fantasy,
1: which is just like you, you know, Rachel has this great close friend from college who's rich. You know, she's part of the nouveau riche uh, developer class and, you know, is able to fund her makeover and, you know, the wardrobe that she needs to impress her new family. And to your point, I think the thing is that has never stopped romantic comedies in the past, Mm -hmm. whether it be Nancy Myers, whether it be, you know, Made in Manhattan. It's like, this is definitely not the first film to glorify wealth or to warn about it, you know, like Great Gatsby or Titanic. All of these films are about super rich people. And to to your point, I think it's... um, Eleanor is actually a great warning about the, the perils of being responsible and tasked with taking care of that much wealth. She has to give up a lot of her life and what she wants and her career and her education in order to take care of her family and the families that depend on her and her family's corporation. So I think that that is actually a really interesting note that is easy to lose when we're discussing this, which is the perils of being tasked with taking care of this wealth and also the feeling of you have to look a certain way and you have to continue to feel that fulfillment. I mean, Astrid is a, a subplot character in this film, and she talks about having all the money in the world and still having a deeply unfulfilled home life. And it causes an enormous strain with her relationship with her husband, who did not come from the same kind of financial background. So if you really think about it, and you know, a lot of people have written a lot of essays about this, um, there is a lot of wealth on display for sure, and you know the glamour of an, a, a, an enormously opulent wedding and bachelor party and and several parties in the film. But I think there are definitely um, attempts to display those real costs for what happens when you are tasked with maintaining that kind of lifestyle and what it can do to a family when that is prior to prioritized above
0: all else. Right. I, I just to back up uh, Eleanor is the character played by Michelle Yeo. She is kind of uh one rung down from mater familias uh of this wealthy family. Uh, she is the chilly uh mother uh, of the uh, male, male romantic lead here and uh Michelle Yeoh is really terrific in this in this role. I do want to say just for the record that, you know, I mean, The Great Gatsby, well, first of all, we'll go back to I mean, um, uh, Titanic is very much a movie about sort of class differences and and you know who lives down in steerage and stuff like that. Great Gatsby and and, and Citizen Kane and movies like that were, to my way of thinking, cautionary tales about what happens to you when you get rich. You know, it, it's lonely, it's isolating, uh, it can cause you to confuse your own wealth with uh, with your own real personal goals. And this movie explores that. It kind of probes at that possibility. Um, But, and you know, and somebody, we don't want to do any spoilers, somebody makes a choice for love anyway. So, I mean, maybe that's sort of what you're saying, too, is that that it it does somewhere in there begin to reprioritize some of those things that that Nick has inherited just by dint of of who he's born to be in his family.
1: And they joke about that, right? The fact Mm -hmm. that he is very he very much rejects the money that he comes from. You know, he takes her netflix password you know he steals bits of her dessert when they go out on dates and i think that's a really interesting thing about um the layers of this film and i mean there are legitimate criticisms uh about there needs to be many more stories about asians and asian americans that portray a variety of skin tones and educational backgrounds and income levels but the fact of the matter is that if it, it's a lot of responsibility and an impossible burden to task this one film with trying to cram in all of these anticipated criticisms regarding things like class and wealth, you know, and ultimately and, and because it was based on a book and the book was much more satirical and detail laden because it had the, um, you know, it had the advantage of being 500 pages
0: Right. And, and, and could explore also some um, ways in which Singapore and mainland China, Nouveau Riche, size each other up. That's just sort of a thing that was not going to make it probably into this movie. Um, just would be hard to do, right?
1: There is only so much we can cram, right. I think, into a two-hour film. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, th- and that is a real issue that Kevin Kwan told me when I was doing the research and interviewing him for this time feature, which is just... I think uh, even in terms of, there's always going to be compromises made when you're adapting, uh, you know, a very, a detail-rich book, uh, to the screen, and also trying to make it still accessible on a global stage in the way that they wanted it to when they turned on the Netflix deal.
0: Right, and you know, uh, to to the extent that it is at times a critique on wealth and excess, uh, maybe we can hear a, a little bit of that. Uh, this is a, a scene from one of the incredibly uh, lavish parties. Uh, and uh, I think it's uh, one of the earlier lavish parties. Uh, You're going to hear Rachel. Uh, She, uh, once again, is played by Constance Wu, who we're going to talk about in just a second, and uh, who is the ingenue, uh, the Cinderella thrust into all this. Uh, And you're going to hear, in particular, a character named Oliver, one of several sources of comic relief. Uh, He is, I think he calls himself the rainbow sheep of the family. He's pretty obviously uh, a gay member of this incredibly uh, dominant Singaporean family. And so here they are at the party.
3: Hi, I'm Rachel. Oh, I know.
4: <laughs>
3: Rachel. Oh, Rachel. I heard you thought Alma was a cook. Ah. Uh,
0: on the bright side, you're the talk of the party. People like your dress.
3: Oh, I did not. Oh. I know.
4: She's a chic 70s goddess. So Oliver, are you a cousin too?
0: Mm. Well, I'm one of the poorer relations. The rainbow sheep of the family. <laughs> But I make myself useful. Whatever the youngs want, I procure. Golden Koi fish, furniture, mm. a rare Cambodian gong.
4: Why would they want to buy a rare Cambodian gong?
0: <laughs> because they can. So there are moments like this, and moments that are, have an even more piercing gaze, uh, Karen, than this. That look at that kind of consumption, that kind of consumption that that starts to take place because it can becomes kind of a self-licking ice cream cone. Uh, and um, there are times where the movie really does sort of look at that and say, <laughs> you know, there's that there's a road to hell that these people are on, and they just don't know it.
1: I mean, you know, it it just becomes. Uh an extreme game of keeping up with the Joneses, right? Like there's an entire scene about all the matriarchs gathering together and, uh, you know, under the guise of a Bible study, but it's all about what are they wearing? You know, what are their children doing and what is the gossip that is flitting around all of their phones? And I think that's a really, you know, you know, I think it's it's something that is discussed about um, among white Hollywood stars Um, in the way that we see it in the gossip pages or in in tabloids. But I think it's um, a much bigger problem than people realize on a global scale. And why would it not affect the super rich in Asia as well, in terms of the the ways in which they feel uh, the need to impress others and also uh, just prove to themselves that they are enormously successful and that anything they want, they can have immediately.
0: Um, let's talk a little bit about Constance Wu. If there's going to be a breakout star, uh, well, she already is the breakout star. She already is, is a breakout star uh, from this, um, uh, sh- this movie. She's uh, also in the show. Uh, f- she's the star of the show Fresh Off the Boat, uh, a uh, network comedy uh, with uh, Asian-American leads. Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit. You, you've had some time to get to know her. Tell us a little bit more about, about uh, who she is and what's happening to her as the result of all this.
1: I mean, she's an incredible person. I spent about three hours with her, you know, walking around a reservoir in Los Angeles. And the thing that really strikes me is that um, she feels the actual physical weight of having the pressure of doing the first show, you know, in 20 years that had an all Asian cast um, for major network television. And then uh, so she had gone through um, every single question about diversity and uh, the the burden of representation for five years, right? Her show has just um, made syndication status, which means many more people will be able to see it into the future, but also it represents um, a very specific type of Asian American experience, which is what is it like for a family to struggle, to immigrate to a part of the United States, grow up in the nineties and, you know, really establish their own sense of identity amidst classic parts of American culture, like going to shop at Costco. She's enormously funny, really sensitive and observant. And I think um, she carries the weight of changing an industry in a way that I think is really extraordinary. And it did not surprise me at all when she told me about having panic attacks on a regular basis before the start of this film. Because I think uh, she has been very brave and outspoken about the weaknesses in the industry and how she is actively trying to, you know, increase opportunities and change it for the better but she's also, you know, one person, and I think it's really, really hard um, to constantly do that for years and not have it physically affect you, both emotionally and personally.
0: I mean, I, I do want to say I think she's got, and this, this whole business of carrying any rom com, particularly a rom com with expectations and money and stuff like that attached to it, there, there are certain people who can do it, and it's, a, it's a, an unusual skill set, and I think she's got really tremendous uh, comic chops when she needs them. Uh, But she also has the ability to kind of sell her emotional state to the audience and get the get the audience to collaborate with her on her emotional state. I mean, it's one of the reasons that the other people you could uh, name. uh, And I would also add she's non. she's not intimidating, you know, I mean, the reason that Sandra Bullock is, I think, good at this too, is that we know people who look and talk and act like Sandra Bullock, and we don't know so many people who look like Anne Hathaway, Um, and and I think Wu has this obvious beauty to her, uh, and certainly when she's all gotten up very specially for the wedding she has to attend, she's uh, absolutely stellar and stunning, but she's also, you know, I don't know, the the overworked cliche, I guess, is the girl next door, and I think she kind of has that.
1: Oh, I I think so too. I mean, the thing that's amazing is it took a long time for her to be seen as even the possibility of a girl next door because so often the girl next door has just not looked like her for such a long time, right? Like this is literally her first studio film and she's the lead and she's on all the billboards and she's the number one bill. And I think that's extraordinary. And it's also, but she's been training for an opportunity like this her entire life, right? Like she had been doing lots of great comedic work on Fresh Off the Boat and she has classically been trained in theater and so she was ready for this opportunity I just think it's just interesting that um you know for the first time it was she got to be the heroine and someone like her got to be the heroine and it's just like it it always makes me wonder and you know it took a lot of things for this to happen that there were many producers who asked that Rachel be recast as a white girl and so even the mindset of like this could be real in many people's minds wasn't a possibility for a long time and until the creative talent um, like John M. Chu and Kevin Kwan really insisted that this was going to happen and this was not negotiable.
0: Um, uh, we're running out of time a little bit, uh, Karen Cahoe, but I, I do want to pause and say I think there's another breakout star here. I'd already seen Ocean's 8, which I found a little bit snoozy. But every once in a while, this person would pop up on the screen who I did not know about and had not recognized. And the movie would suddenly be a lot less snoozy. And that's Aquafina. Uh, in here. She uh, plays uh, huge amounts of comic relief, and just it's it's almost a for a sidekick role. It's kind of a tour de force, just in the number of little things she manages to pull off, and the little comic style she manages to uh, to evoke. I don't know. I, I I'm seeing a very rich future for Aquafina. Aw- I mean, obviously she already had an established hip hop career and stuff like that too.
1: I mean, her hip hop career is still in, it was seen as very niche and in the early stages. It was mostly an online viral hit um, with things like My Vag and all these other, you know, really acerbic uh, songs. It's going to be really interesting. Uh, There's been criticism about the accent that she often uses in films, Mm -hmm. but uh, her timing is impeccable. And it's going to be really interesting to see her uh, rely on uh, different skills and what happens when she stops using that particular hip hop inflected accent or known as a black scent Mm -hmm. um because i think uh it might enable her to actually do much a wider amount of work and also not alienate a really important um segment of the movie going public which is the uh black and african-american community because i think she has you know great comedic timing she just needs to be much more of herself without relying on on that sort of trope and i think it's going to be really interesting what the next stage of her career is because she's already scheduled to be in several more films.
0: Right. I, I think the other thing worth mentioning about her is, I mean, the great comedic performers, whether we're talking about Katherine Hepburn or Charlie Chaplin, um, can could move, could really move in interesting ways. Uh, this young woman, whether she's playing a street hustling pickpocket in, in uh, Ocean's 8 or this, you know, zany sidekick here, she's in motion all the time and she's in a very interesting kind of motion. She can use her body for comic effect uh, and that's something that I don't think you can easily teach so uh, yeah there's the accent question but I just want to see I like I like watching her walk up a flight of stairs Uh, she's just to make that funny somehow Um, well Karen Cahoe this is uh, so much fun to talk to you uh, and I'm fresh out of the movie uh, so uh, I hope I wasn't too scatterbrained but um, definitely read Karen Cahoe's Time magazine cover story Crazy Rich Asians is going to change Hollywood it's about time uh, and we're going to come back we're going to talk about baseball but hopefully not in a way that will. Frighten away, you people who don't do the sportsy thing. The sportsing? Is that what it's called? All right. Uh, We are indeed back. It's Festivus uh, uh, season in baseball. It's actually always Festivus season in baseball in the sense that Festivus includes the tradition of the airing of grievances. Uh, People are always airing grievances about baseball. What's wrong with baseball? Uh, Well, let's talk about what's wrong theoretically, putatively wrong with baseball right now. Scott Miller is National Major League Baseball columnist for Bleacher Report and Turner Sports. He's the co-author with Bob Tewksbury of 90% Mental. An all-star player turned mental skills coach reveals the hidden game of baseball. You know, I began the last segment by saying, uh, I, "You know, I'm a white guy, so in many respects, uh, I probably don't get everything about representation in movies." I should now, I would now like to say that in terms of not getting everything about what's wrong with baseball in 2018, I'm a Red Sox fan. I think baseball's going great, uh, but maybe not everybody does. Uh, and so, Scott Miller. Um, Tell us a little bit more about this. Uh, there is some uh, drop in attendance, and there is uh, some of the old-timers uh, looking at the game now say it's it's all strikeouts and home runs and not all that really cool stuff in the middle. Uh, how much of that is legitimate?
2: Hi, Colin. Nice to be with you. And uh, I think a, a lot of it's legitimate. I mean, let, let me start by saying the place I'm coming from is not not to uh, take down baseball. I've covered baseball for close to 30 years and I think it's by far the best game out there. Even in this age of all or nothing, home run or strikeouts, baseball's always been a thinking man's game. It's a summer game. Uh, my favorite game by far. Um, that said, yeah, we, you know, we, we, the game goes through cycles, and the cycle we're in right now is for various reasons: uh, small ballparks. A lot of people think the ball's been juiced over the last few years. Um, especially last year, so we've reached this point where also analytics-minded uh, front offices have have analyzed things, and and they th- there's an emphasis now on hitting the ball over the fence, and to the tune of um, it's a game where it, about a third of the time. The ball's not put in play this year because 31.6 percent of the at bats end in strikeouts, walks, or hit batters, and a good percentage of runs scored now—you um, know, about 35 percent—come on home runs. And, and since the Elias Sports Bureau, the official statistician of baseball, uh, started tracking strikeouts in both leagues way back in 1913. Um, there's only been six seasons in which thir- over 30 percent of runs come from home runs and in which st- I should say strikeouts, walks, and home runs account for more than 30 percent of the of, of the number and all six of those seasons have come since 2012.
0: Um there's a couple of things that um uh, appear to be part of this conversation. Um yep. one of them one of them terms turns up in everything that you just said and then one of them doesn't. Let's start with the one that does. I mean anybody who watches baseball these days knows that um people pitchers are throwing the ball with what Dennis Eckersley calls variously hump or gas or cheese or, mm-hmm. or whatever it's it, the 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 hundred mile an hour fastball is no longer the freak show that it used to be and everybody seems to be throwing up around 93 or 94 and people sometimes are criticized for that he's only throwing he's only hitting 93 or 94 on this on the right. speed gun so how, how big uh, an issue is that how big a part of that conversation is that
2: well there's no question that has contributed to this to the um the the Record setting number of strikeouts um, that we're seeing now. In fact, the last several years, the last five or six years in a row, baseball has broken its own strikeout record. Um, You know, that number keeps going up. And this year, by the way, also, there's a, there's a, this could be the first year in baseball history in which there are more strikeouts than hits overall. In April, we had the first month in baseball history where there were more strikeouts than hits. No question, The uh, as you say, Mr. Eckersley, great uh, commentator, analyst, by the way, on Red Sox broadcast, Hall of Famer. Um, you know, call it gas, call it hump, call it cheese, whatever. There's no question pitchers are throwing harder than ever. And that contributes to the strikeouts. Not just the speed, though, um, because as it's been said before, you know, a major league hitter could time a speeding bullet if he sees it enough. I mean, these guys can get around on fastballs. The problem is as, as velocities increased, it's also the breaking balls because most hitters can even hit a 100 mile an hour fastball, but when a pitcher amps it up that high, then he drops in a breaking ball of say 89 miles an hour. That's where it becomes so difficult for hitters, because it's all about changing speeds. And when you push the top end of the of the ceiling up to 100 miles an hour, then you drop in something 80 miles an hour. That that's where it becomes so difficult.
0: Although once again. Uh, so a change-up uh, is, uh, uh, for people who don't follow baseball, uh, a, p- p- a pitch that the pitcher releases with a kind of mimicry of what would typically be his very fast pitch. Instead, it's much yeah. slower. Uh, although, once again, this year we are h- we are hearing about change-ups that are 91, 92 miles per hour, which used to be at the speed of a fastball. The changeup used to be much slower. So <laughs> a- everything is sort of being uh, changed around that way. Let me ask you about another part of this. And this doesn't address the balls in play, the not enough balls in play issue that you You've been uh, talking about and writing about. But to me, it's actually the most irksome thing. There are many times now when I'm watching a baseball game and I see a hitter lash what I think is going to be what Roy Blunt Jr. once called a piquant single, you know, a perfect single sailing up the middle of the uh, field, you know, right out to center field, and it's caught by some guy standing behind second base. Uh, I see a lot of balls that look like they're going to be very satisfying hits that are caught because there are these metrics driven shifts where. By really, it's just crunching the numbers of where each hitter hits each kind of pitch. The infielders have cards where they know exactly where to stand. I find that incredibly boring.
2: Yeah, and that that's that definitely plays into it too. And, and the major league batting average this year is two forty eight. It's the lowest batting average since 1972. And you know, even people as high up as Commissioner Rob Manfred. Um, are worried about this, the lack of balls put in play. And shifts, no question, have contributed to sabotaging offenses. And, you know, many of the analytics minded people say, look, you know, this is a smart way to play. And Manfred's hinted at outlawing the shifts. And the analytics minded people say, just because we figured something out, you shouldn't outlaw it. Um, One of the ways to change the shift, by the way, if you legislate, you know, if you're in Commissioner Manfred's shoes, you know, one way is that has been suggested would be to draw an imaginary line from home plate through second base all the way into center field. In other words, up the middle of the diamond and say, okay, you can deploy two infielders on one side of that line, two on the other. Doesn't you can put them wherever you want, but you can't move that third infielder over, for example, between first and second base. Um, now there are others who. Shudder at the thought of legislating something like that. Yeah, this I mean, to me, that
0: that sounds like the Iowa caucuses or something. I I don't, I don't want that. Right. I, well, I'm sort of surprised, Scott, that hitters don't simply develop more skills. Why don't they? Why aren't there more people in spring training working on? You know, there's so many of these shifts where an idiot I could probably bunt on some of these shifts. Yeah. You know, or just learn to spray the ball around the way Matty Alou used to do. You know, I mean, uh, the more that you do that, the harder you are to program for. It just seems like the solution is for the hitters to do stuff that seems glaringly obvious to some idiot watching TV like me.
2: Well, Colin, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. In fact, after this piece ran on Bleacher Report this week, the the the, the very next day, you know, I woke up to a, a text from a manager. I, I I don't have his permission to share, so I'm not going to say who, but a text from a, a prominent manager in the majors that said, uh, among other things, he said and he he he's like what kind of leans toward what you just said. He doesn't favor legislation. He thinks the change needs to be organic. He says the only recourse is to have hitters that hitters have is getting back to old hitting techniques, using the entire field, choking up, making adaptations into the at bat, things like that, uh, shortening your swing uh, with two strikes, and that I is where I hope the game goes next. I think organizations had better teach, do a better job of teaching their hitters and hitters better do a better job of developing and learning. We used to hear so much about use the whole field. George Brett, the hall of famer told me for this story, he said, if they would have shifted me back in 1980, I would have hit 600. Now, granted, not everybody wields his bat like a magic wand like George Brett did, like Tony Gwynn once did. Um, not everybody has that skill set, but far more hitters have the capability of using the whole field than we're seeing. Now, the analytics-minded people or in organizations, Jason Wirth, the former Philly, was quoted recently saying he that organizations are telling hitters, no, don't drop down bunts, don't go the other way. We want you to hit... Over the shift. In other words, try to hit home runs. Well, if you're David Ortiz, that works pretty well. But for many other hitters that are shifted on, you know, they can't hit home runs on command, although they're trying. And some are doing it and some aren't. And that's why the batting averages are going down. So that's really the crux of the shift debate is should Commissioner Rob Manford legislate something or our team's going to be able to figure out ways to start beating the shift by using the whole, having their hitters use the whole field.
0: Yeah, I mean Ted Williams was one of the early people to be shifted on, and he yep. refused to adjust his style at all, and it worked fine as you're saying. It works fine for Ted Williams, yeah, but, that's right? But everybody else, Granted,
2: we all understand. Not everybody's Ted Williams yeah. or George Brett or Tony Gwynn, but. Yeah that uh, doesn't mean everybody has to be helpless.
0: No, and it, it's, you know, there's this phrase that exists much more in other sports. Make them pay. So if they fill the box up to try to stop Walter Payton's run, you throw. You make them pay for the fact that they've got too many linebackers packed up towards the line of scrimmage. If you press too much uh, in the backcourt, you know, make them pay. Lob it down to the other end of the court. And it seems to me baseball hitters have to get into the Make them pay. You have nobody at third base right now. Nobody. I'm going to make you pay for that.
2: Right. And, and I mean, it's we've heard anybody that's watched baseball, from a, an avid fan to a casual fan, has probably heard it's a game of adjustments. You know, the constant season change. Uh, you, you, the first time you see a pitcher, he may try to work the hitter this way. The second time, the, if he got the hitter out, well, the hitter better figure out how did he get me out the first time. I'm going to have to adjust and to what the pitcher's doing and take away what he's doing the second time. And, it, and that's what, to your point, Colin. I mean, if if the defense is shifting here, do this and make an adjustment. And as you say, make them pay or make them come out of their defensive alignment the next time. They right.
0: Face. Either that or, of course, the, then the, everybody will be like the Tampa Bay Rays and never let you see a pitcher twice. We have to stop there. Scott Miller, uh, National Major League Baseball columnist for Bleacher Report and Turner Sports, thank you so much for doing this segment with us. When we come back, a very, very unusual, but I'm told, sublime set of endorsements. Once again, just a reminder, uh, we ordinarily do the nose today with a the panel. There's usually three people in the studio with me when we get to this point. First of all, you hear some credits from Kyone Wolf. She's not here today. Betsy Kaplan's uh, running the board in her place. Uh, and Jonathan McPants is the person who produced this show. He wants credit for the fact that the outro music in the last segment was a minor key version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And also that he had compiled a very lovely clip of Aaron uh, Judge talking about all of his strikeouts, and we just didn't have time to use it. All right, so um, what I suggested was that all the producers, uh, instead of the panel, because there is no panel, uh, make some endorsements, some recommendations. And so we're just going to kind of go alphabetically. We've got the producers of where we live in addition to my producers. Uh, And so let's start with Carmen Baskoff from where we live.
3: All right, so I would like to endorse the New Haven Free Public Library. Um, I went there a couple weeks ago to find a spot with air conditioning to do some work. And I found out that the public library in New Haven has this new innovation center, um, which has all of these cool tools that are open to anyone with a library card. Um, You just have to get some training on it. So they have like a 3D printer. I'm really excited. They have a laser cutter, which I would love to learn how to use. Sewing machines, vinyl cutters. I think all their computers have like the Adobe Creative Suite on them. Um, and, again, that's accessible to everyone with a library card. I think the materials are provided for free, too. Um, so I haven't done my training yet, uh, but I'm hoping to spend a lot more time at my local library.
0: All right. That was the amazing uh, Carmen Baskoff of Where We Live. I don't, I, I don't know how to even comment on that um, because like, I don't know what a laser cutter is, for example. Anyway, uh, let's keep moving. Also from Where We Live, um, uh, producing Wunderkind, Lydia Brown.
3: I would like to endorse Weir Farm in southwestern Connecticut. This is a 68-acre National Historic Site, which is replete with beautiful gardens and trails. It also features the former home and studio of American Impressionist painter Julian Alden Weir. My boyfriend and I recently took a free tour of the artist's home and then enjoyed a nice stroll around a nearby pond. I remember it was raining, but we still had a lovely time. We even witnessed a few visitors taking advantage of the free watercolor supplies that were available at the visitor center. So once again, Weir Farm, I highly recommend it. To learn more, visit nps.gov and type Weir Farm into the search box.
0: Uh, and I might add, weir is spelled W E I R. That kind of weir. Uh, all right. Now we're moving on to uh, producers uh, from actually only one of the actual regular originating producers of the show contributed to this, but because uh, Josh is not available right now, and I don't know why Pants decided not to. But uh, here's our senior producer Betsy Kaplan uh, with what she likes.
3: I'm endorsing two tools: the Zipit Bath and Sink Hair Snare and the Bricks Jar Key. So Zip It is a 20 inch long very skinny plastic tool. It's flexible and it feels kind of flimsy in your hand, but it's not. The sides are lined top to bottom with symmetrically spaced barbs that point upward. So it's sort of like thorns on a rose bush. You stick it straight down the drain and slowly lift it up. Whatever's down there will either break apart or get stuck on the barbs as you pull it out. It's way more effective than the asthma inducing drain cleaners that we used to use. I wasn't planning to find it, I was at Home Depot with Keith, he was looking at something else and I happened to stumble upon this great tool and it cost $2.50. The Bricks Jar Key is the plastic jar opener that releases the vacuum seal on screw top lids that are hard to open. It sort of looks and works like a bottle opener, but instead of removing a bottle cap, say, it just breaks the seal. You can hear it pop, which I seem to like for some reason, and it doesn't mess up the threads so you can screw the lid back on if you don't use the whole bottle. I injured my right thumb a few years ago and it's never regained full strength, so I have trouble twisting off screw top lids. The same thing happened to my mother. When she was younger, she broke her thumb and she never regained her strength. So before I found the jar key, I used to use an old trick that my mother used. She would roll a jar across the floor with her foot until the seal loosened. I don't know why this works, but it does. Anyways, the jar key costs $5 and comes in five colors. Mine is yellow it's all they had
0: all right so uh, i don't want you to think that the staff of where we live goes on these romantic walks around, uh, paint, you know, lakes uh, that are associated with painters and we just fish gunk out of our drains because that's not true. We we lead a rich and fulfilling life. But anyway, you'll probably want both of those products. So we have to make sure that all this stuff is up on the website, WNPR slash Colin. You can go there, look for today's episode and we'll certainly uh, tell you how, uh, how to get the thing where Betsy Kaplan uh, fishes gunk uh, out of the drain. Keith is her husband, by the way. Uh, All right, so uh, let's move on to Carlos Mejia. Carlos uh, is uh, our guru of all things technical. I'm looking up his actual title. It's a digital producer at Connecticut Public Radio. What's Carlos up to? If you or someone you know is in need of a new barber, then I highly recommend Frank's on West in Bristol, Connecticut. Owned and operated by Frank West. Frank is your friendly neighborhood barber. Located conveniently on West Street. You get it? Frank West on West Street? Frank only takes appointments because he's running the business completely on his own. But he takes complaints really well. Visit franksonwestllc.com dot com to book an appointment, or visit the shop on Instagram as Frank's West LLC, and tell him the nose sent you. Before we go to the the nose, I'm sure that's going to make Frank's day. But um. The, uh, <laughs> uh, I have to say that I need a haircut really badly right now. And and one thing that some people know about me anyway, is that I, A, have no, bar. we're going to get the Kion Wolf's endorsement in just a second, but I have no fixed barber here in Connecticut. I haven't for a long, long time. I used to go to a guy named Mr. Picard uh, on Trumbull Street in Hartford, but he's retired a long time ago. And I just haven't really formed a relationship with anybody, So uh, with any barber. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I need a haircut right now, and I don't know what to to do. I was going to get one in Austin, Texas, where I've been for the previous 4 days. It's so hot in Austin, Texas, you can't go anywhere. God forbid you should go like walking around looking for a barbershop, you would die. You would just be found on the street or something. Uh, so I couldn't possibly do that. Um, anyway, that that does that. so I should say I've gotten my hair cut in Suillac, France, twice in Montreal. Uh, in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I don't know. <laughs> like lots of places that aren't here, basically, San Francisco. Uh, and uh, maybe I'll have to go to Exotic Bristol. Uh, i got to do something about this here. All right. Uh, finally, uh, our technical producer, Kyone Wolf. Let's see what she's up to.
4: My endorsement is the Seeing White podcast. It's from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and it's hosted by John Buen and sort of co-hosted by Chenjerai Komenika And it's about... Well, being white. And when I first heard about it, it was sort of a hard sell. Why would I be interested in knowing more about whiteness? But it has vastly broadened my understanding about race and how race was conceived of and taught and understood and totally misunderstood. Stuff I never even thought about or that I thought I understood, but I definitely, definitely don't. Every episode's a little bit different in terms of length. Sometimes they're 13 minutes, sometimes they're 48 minutes. There are 14 episodes in this whole series, Seeing White. And if you're only going to listen to one, listen to episode four. The name of that episode is On Crazy We Built a Nation. I've listened to that one episode three times just to try to wrap my head around how we got here. Uh, So listen to the Seeing White podcast. It'll blow your mind and hopefully humble all of us in the face of all that needs to be learned and unlearned. So, Seeing White, that's my endorsement.
0: You know, one thing about this show is I'm never, I never hesitate to steal ideas. Even the idea of endorsements is an idea I stole from Slate Culture Gab Fest. As long as you acknowledge it you know, from time to time, uh, you can steal things. So I'll tell you an, an idea that I'm going to steal that sort of I can incorporate into an endorsement. So I was just at this public radio program director's uh, convention, and the smartest guy in public radio, I think, is this guy John Barth. By smartest, I mean he thinks the most Closely to the way I think. That's that's how I judge whether, whether someone is smart or not. Um, but anyway, uh, I asked him, well, what's a really good podcast? He told me uh, about, he said, Everything is Alive. That's all he said, uh, but, which I assumed was probably the name of a podcast. And I was correct. So Everything Alive is um, a podcast where they... Uh, in, uh, where one person interviews an inanimate object, which is played by a voice actor. The uh, episode you're going to listen to is the is the one fe- featuring Dennis, the the pillow. Uh, so it's a pillow named Dennis. He talks about what it's like to be a pillow. And I'm stealing this idea once because Jonathan McPens has somewhere in our pipeline a show about towels coming up. And I'm just I just totally want to in, uh, interview a towel uh, as part of that sh- uh, that uh, show. Anyway, I, I will just wrap up by saying yes, I've been in Austin. Uh, for the, all of the preceding days of this week. I uh, got home last night. Uh, we were there. Katie Tularsky, Beth Maceda, and I were all there. We've come home with a big grab bag of ideas. I'm always looking for ways to tweak and mess around with the, uh, our, our show episodes. So uh, we're going to keep the nose off the air for at least one more week while we think a little bit more about anything we might like to change. If you have ideas about things that you'd like us to change or new things you want us to try, you can email me, Colin, just my first name, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Thanks to everybody who came out uh, to work on this uh, lovely day. And thanks to all of you who are listening right now.